This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. He's not just watching the government take control of the internet, he's doing something about it. His name is Mike Benz, and he's here to tell you exactly what's going on and how you should react. I'm James Polis. This is Zero Hour. Mike is the executive director of a little something called the Foundation for Freedom Online. He's a former speechwriter for President Trump and spends his days protecting digital liberties, restoring free and open internet. Sounds like a good thing to me. Will it last? Do we have it now? Welcome to the program. Thanks, James. All right. So let's call this what it is. They're nationalizing the internet, right? Yeah, they are. They're putting it back in the box. I mean, the internet really started as a national project, as a military project. Uh, when it was back when it was ARPA, before ARPA became DARPA, and that was in the 1960s. And it was a national project for 30 years until uh, basically 1991, when it became a private thing with the World Wide Web. Uh, and uh, now we are, we are witnessing it go back in the box is that as the same sort of military and government uh, structures are threatened by freedom on the internet and are attempting to reassert control over it. So we're going to talk about illegal memes in a little bit, but one of my favorite memes, which is not yet illegal, is with the two astronauts and one sort of pointing the gun at the other one and they're looking at the world. And always, he says, has so always has been. Has the Internet always been kind of a government thing? How private did it ever really get? You know, that's a great point, because in the 1960s and 70s, uh, back when there was this vigorous anti-war uh, left wing movement in the country, there were protests at Harvard about the early use of the internet as a military means for control over society. Uh, it, was, it was referred to, the, internet, the early internet was referred to as a kind of octopus type control mechanism by the military because its initial use case was compiling intelligence dossiers for the military to control uh, insurgency groups overseas as part of this newly burgeoning American empire during the Cold War. So the, the military was getting all of this information from our social science folks in academia and in think tanks, and it was all on paper, there was, but there was so, so much of it, and we had control over so much territory, from the Philippines to Vietnam to the Marshall Plan reconstruction in, in Europe. And so digitizing all that information within, within internet, with it, making it digital, uh, was a huge efficiency for the military. And at the time, there, the, left, the left wing in this country was apoplectic about the threats of, of the internet uh, as, as because of a concern that third world peoples were going to be controlled by the military. But what we've seen now is it's gone from sort of a hypothetical with non-US countries being controlled uh, to our own internal politics uh, being controlled now by, uh, by military control over speech and by government control over speech which is really kind of the dead center of the censorship industry. You have these huge Pentagon, State Department, and intelligence communities uh, connections to control over speech, basically reasserting in the digital age the kind of control mechanisms they had over media in the 20th century. This is so wild because, you know, the story that we usually hear about the birth of the Internet, uh, especially with regard to the military's involvement and kind of how, why the logic of why it was created is usually something more along the lines of, well, you know, we had to survive nuclear war, and if there was going to be sort of mutually assured destruction, then we wanted to still be the ones to survive. And you know, insert Doctor Strange love reference here. And so, what better way to do that than to make sure that information could be exchanged between all these kind of points mm -hmm. across the domestic grid, so America could live on even after the nukes flew? What you're telling me is it's actually uh, more accurate to say that the, the military-industrial complex, the, the global American empire, obsolesced the medium of print by simply exceeding the bounds of what printed matter could do. No, that's exactly right. And then and you can make an argument that even the privatization of the internet 
was part of a military blueprint as well. Certain, I mean, one of the, the data points that I talk about a lot, and this is all covered in a great book by Yasha Levine called Surveillance Valley. He sort of comes at it from a different angle, but all the data points are there, which is that all of the initial freedom of speech um, technology that, that we now have today, VPNs, virtual private networks to hide your IP address, end-to-end -end encrypted chats, uh, Tor, the dark web to be able to buy and sell goods anonymously, were all actually U.S. government-funded projects in order to support U.S.-backed insurgency movements overseas who were being uh, throttled by their own government. When we wanted to create an insurgency or do a regime change operation to topple a hostile foreign government, we would pump in the internet to them, essentially. We would train bloggers, dissident bloggers, and, and dissident forum owners and, uh, to be able to create an independent media ecosystem in their country independent from state-run media so that they could organize and achieve a critical mass to overthrow their governments. And this is, for example, what we saw with the Arab Spring, which was, which was heralded by the press as you know, the, the, the finest moment of the internet. It was internet diplomacy at its best. It was a, these were Facebook and Twitter-fueled revolutions that serendipitously toppled every adversary government of the Obama administration in the Middle East. From Democracy Egypt. in action. Right, but you know, these groups were all, uh, were all getting funding from the US State Department. They were all assisted by our CIA. They, these countries were all in the crosshairs of our Pentagon. And free speech was our weapon to be able to inflate that into a critical mass to overthrow the government. The, and then as soon as, as a free speech on the internet started threatening their own interests, with the Philippines election in 2016 going the wrong way, with the Brexit referendum and with the Trump election, suddenly they switch from an insurgency free speech modality to a counterinsurgency censorship modality. And we're living in, in basically the middle stages of that transition. Yeah, they get you coming and going. I mean, this is such a pain point for, I, I mean, look, you know, I, I'm glad it's not my job to figure out how to run the Biden administration right now. They do have some tough choices. It's a tough world out there. Um, but, but just looking at the way in which we've become so reliant on these technologies, that if you sort of, what's in the, the toolkit of American statecraft right now? How can we respond to genuine challenges, genuine threats, genuine geopolitical uh, issues that need to be addressed? What's the blueprint? What's the path forward for, you know, maybe it's not American uh, complete domination of the entire world, but you know, everyone still wants America to more or less be on top. What's in the toolkit? You dump it out and it's like, well, it's taking over the internet. That's painful because if we can't, if that's bad, and you know, one of my rules of thumb right now is everyone basically actually agrees on the facts. We pretend that we disagree on the facts. But everyone knows what's going on. It's just one side says, and that's good to whatever the fact is. And one side says, and that's bad. And so, okay, maybe it's good, maybe it's bad. But if that's the only tool left in the box, what are we gonna do if we look at that tool and we say, well, wait a minute, this isn't America anymore. Yeah, and I mean, there's, there's so much blowback from this strategy as well. I mean, these countries remember it when we try to topple their governments. And you know, we had a pretty good strategy during the Cold War of building up ourselves so that we had more assets to play with in that toolkit back when we had a domestic manufacturing base in this country and it wasn't all offshored and we weren't reliant on supply chains so much overseas because we had such a robust, you know, we, we had a, you know, <laughs> all of our manufacturing was basically at home from the, from the steel companies to, uh, you know, to, to all of the domestic labor. And, and, and these were all leverage points that we could assert in diplomacy as, as part of uh, value-based trades. You know, I, I sort of talk a lot about how uh, we've transitioned from doing diplomacy on the basis of value to diplomacy on the basis of values, yeah. which means instead of doing these sort of, okay, uh, you will vote the way we want you to vote at, at this UN Security Council meeting, or you will allow us to have a military base or whatever, because we are selling you these goods and you are getting value from that, or we are building your bridges and you need us for, for that. It's an exchange of value. You'll do this for us and we'll do that for you and we both you know, get something out of it. And because we don't really have that value to offer anymore um, for a number of reasons, we've transitioned to statecraft on the basis of values, which is just basically weaponizing our financial system and saying, if you do not you know, adopt this migration policy, or if you do not allow in, you know, independent media, State Department funded NGOs and proxies into your country, or th this, you know, this policy on LGBT issues as we're doing in Africa or whatnot, 
uh, then we will sanction you. We will cut you off from the U.S. dollar. We will cut you off from U.S. banks. Um, or, or, and we will organize a color revolution within your country to oust your government. That is, that is a very dirty way of doing diplomacy. And as much flack as China gets, and I'm as much of a China hawk as anybody else, uh, I think, in, in the sort of Trump State Department, um, but you know, they don't do diplomacy this way. They do good old-fashioned bribery. They do good old-fashioned, you know, what the U.S. did in the 20th century. They, they're building ports and bridges. They are, they're, they're giving, you know, they're building infrastructure and helping countries grow and then letting them have the, the culture that they have endogenously. And they don't weaponize the use of, you know, the renminbi. They, they are not, uh, they're not doing this value. They're doing value-based diplomacy. And, and the U.S., I think, got lazy at some point and saw how easy it was because how powerful we were during that unipolar moment in the 1990s after we won the Cold War, that no one could stop us. So we can just throw our weight around. We can sanction whoever we want. And it's like that meme, you know, where it's, you know, you're yelling at somebody at, at, uh, in the, at a party and then enough people start to, you start to yell at enough people that you go from kicking somebody out of your little friend group to being the only one by yourself and everybody else that you've made enemies out of are friends. I saw that at the State Department, by the way, when we were getting outvoted in the International Telecommunications Union by, every, by all these countries who were affiliated with China. I thought the U.S. was on top. And when I got to the State Department and, you know, was, was our sort of representative at the oldest multilateral uh, organization on earth, which is the, the, the ITU, the International Telecommunications Union, we, we were outvoted by China and we had to be, we, had to, we were desperate just to get a stalemate. And this is because China is, is they are actually in much more, I, th I think it's frankly more ethical than what we're currently doing to do good old fashioned bribery and building as opposed to these dirty tactics that we're doing now. There's an old saying, good men create good times. Well, the same is true of business. Good people are the bedrock of a successful enterprise. Unfortunately, today hiring is bleak. Political demands, petty entitlement, open incompetence or sheer cowardice. They're commonplace now. You need people who are keen to join your business and have the chops to make it a success. That's why New Founding has created a network of high-grade professionals ready to join grounded American businesses and get to work. These are individuals from elite organizations ready for a team and a mission that supports their values instead of working against them. Aligned companies are using the new funding network to hire those high-trust, supercharged individuals who match culture and mission to make their teams go. Apply for access to the new founding talent network at newfounding.com backslash talent. You'll get connected with the candidates who will build up your business. That's newfounding.com backslash talent. So many threads. Uh, I want to pull them all. Um, let's, let's try to take a step back and just, just establish what world it is that we're actually living in. Uh, what is the situation that the United States finds itself in geopolitically with regards to tech? Uh, you, you look at a guy like David Goldman, a friend of mine, we do fun stuff together uh, with, with Claremont. His thesis is Sinification. The Chinese have sort of cracked the code on digital. They're already maybe, you know, I don't know if it's 10 or 15 years ahead of us. He wants to show people just like, here's Shanghai today. Here's a town that didn't exist 10 years ago, just so that Americans can really start to understand how ahead they are on sort of digitization yeah. and just building raw stuff, uh, especially with, with robots now. They've, you know, they've automated so much of this stuff. Uh, his thesis is uh, th that kind of Chinese framework is uh, at a breakneck pace spreading around the world. The world's going to become Chinese, basically, unless we do something about it. Uh, is that your read? Do you think that we're, we're really facing a situation where it's sort of like, well, if we don't kind of pull out all the stops, then China's just going to swallow the world as soon as, as tech vanishes eating the world? Yeah, I mean, that's an issue that I was right over the center of at, at State, which is, you know, China was really the first to 5G. In, in, the, in the telecom space. And the US didn't have anything in, in that. Nobody even came close to what Huawei was able to, to do. And Huawei was using the fact that they had the world's you know, basically fastest you know, um, you know, 5G network uh, combined with their diplomacy efforts for developing second and third world countries to be, able to, to be able to essentially try to swap the IT infrastructure that most of the world uses from being sort of a you know, U.S. Bat, you know tel telecom companies to 
to China's you know, largely state-owned giant. And we had a big diplomacy issue there, which is that we didn't have any U.S. national champions who could compete. So we had to make alliances with, you know, uh, Nokia or, uh, or you know, we, we basically had to go to Finland and to South Korea to try to find other countries who had national champions and prop them up Samsung. as proxies. Yeah, exactly. And so, um, you know, part of, you know, part of that I look at is being, you know, in the 20th century, our military industrial complex, um, you know, obviously got fat off government contracts, but there actually was a military investment. There was a government investment in American industry. And uh, that, that, those subsidies have now been completely dispersed across these, you know, sort of social, political, you know, quasi-humanitarian causes that have no utility whatsoever in terms of creating value. And China is focused on the prize, which is building things, the things that make the world work, the things that, you know, are, are, are physical and are not political or you know, are social constructs. They're real hard physical objects, a real hard physical, you know, telecommunications system, real hard physical, you know, high-speed rail, real hard physical ports and roads. Uh, and, you know, the, the American empire went from having that exact spirit in the 20th century in, in the 19th century with the Industrial Revolution and with, with our manufacturing miracle uh, to you know, basically going off into philosopher zone and social division zone. And there is a place for that, but we've wandered so far into it that I, I do have very serious concerns that, that the trajectory right now is, is headed in exactly the way that you articulate as the worst case scenario because I don't see any any course correction. If anything, major U.S. financial and corporate firms are now skating towards China because they're, they've lost faith in the U.S. You look at these major firms like like Morgan Stanley. You know, I mean, pouring billions, tens of billions of dollars into China, and the our financial institutions, our banks. Uh, you even have the World Economic Forum put out a video three years ago uh, talking about you know the world in in 2030 and what it'll look like, and it says the U.S. will no longer be the world's number one superpower. And as they're saying that on screen, they've got a picture of the Chinese flag. Well, the World Economic Forum is BlackRock and it's the US Chamber of Commerce. They're all skating to where the puck is going. And part of that is, you know, the US is, is, is losing our, frankly, our own internal dysfunction and politicization of our legal system and of our, and of our trade um, and of our sanctions policies have lost us the value proposition we always had over China, that they were an authoritarian country where your investments aren't safe. Well, look what Delaware just did to Elon Musk. You know, look at It's those... an authoritarian country where your investments aren't safe. <laughs> exactly. So, you know, it's, um, so as we, as we lost our positive power projection in the sense that we lost our manufacturing miracle, that the, you know, the manufacturing heartland of the country is now a rust belt. Uh, the not only do do our supplies come from uh, supply chain come from overseas, but our labor is now largely overseas. We we don't as we lost that. The thing that we had to hold our hat on to is well, we are to, we are distinct in terms of the values that we have in the U.S. We have free speech. We have we have a, a, a rule of law which will protect you. You know, in in court to always be able to defend your rights and and. Uh, and what we've seen instead is this wanton abuse of the sanction system so that anybody who does business uh, in a way that, that upsets our State Department or, de or Defense Department or intelligence community gets sanctioned. I mean, frankly, I think the sanctions, um, you know, the war that started, you know, with much of this Russia stuff was, you know, was an escalation beyond repair on that back after Crimea in 2014. We don't abide by this free trade concept anymore because any any trade between two other countries that bothers us, we sanction, and uh, and we do the same thing. If anyone in, invests here, you you got to be, you got to be a little bit crazy, frankly, to to put your your money here in under under this current administration. I mean, you just had the head of the Senate Foreign Relations Committee today come out and say that Hungary should be sanctioned because they're not co-signing war on Russia or military support for Ukraine or the LGBT agenda pushed by the State Department, or importing migrants. 
Hungary is just a, a, a tiny little Central European country minding its own business. And they're going to be cut off from the U.S. financial system. By the way, the first thing you see when you fly into, uh, into Budapest, out the airport, is a giant sign for the Bank of China advertising exchanging into the renminbi. I remember seeing that for the first time seven years ago and thinking, oh, my God. Uh, and I thought, and it was very distressing to me at the time. But I look at what our U.S. State Department is doing to Hungary, and I'm saying, you know what, for the people of Hungary, it's good they have a lifeline. Yeah, that, that Chinese billboard right next to the one that says, welcome to Hungary, where you can afford to raise a family. I want to get back to Russia in a little bit, but let's spend a little bit more time with China here. Um, you're right. Absolutely right. We got spanked on 5G, uh, you know, and, and for those who aren't totally up to speed because they have better things to do than, than become tech nerds. Uh, this is a technology that basically creates zero latency, near zero latency. So any device that's on the network anywhere else in the world can basically communicate instantaneously with any other device. So, you know, what does the world mean when that's what's going on? That's a sort of an interesting philosophical question in its own right. Uh, but what the U.S. did, I think, is they said, okay, we're behind on 5G, but gosh darn it, we got the chips. We got the chip fab. So we're going to put the, the strategic energy of the U.S. into being the chip fab masters. Not going to let China uh, get their hands on this stuff. We're going to punish people who want to export this stuff to China. Uh, and so obviously that means Taiwan's really important. Yeah. So what happens with Taiwan? Well, you know, I don't think China's going to blow up Taiwan. That wouldn't make a whole lot of sense. Uh, you don't want to lose the chips. Uh, Taiwan's got basically the, the, the biggest and best chip fab in the world. Um, and so what, what's the U.S. going to do? We're going to bring them to the U.S. Foxconn's going to make these chips. They're going to do it in, you know, Arizona or Wisconsin or wherever they thought it was going to be. It hasn't really panned out. Meanwhile, you look at what's going on with Intel. Uh, suddenly, they were going to be uh, buddies with the with the USG and and make chips kind of so that it, it worked out with the strategic priorities of the of the USG. Um, I don't know if that's panned out as well as people thought that it would. There's been some some turnover there at the executive level. What's going on with the chips, man? No, that I mean that's a that's a great question. I mean, the thing that I'm that you know that I actually see as being more of a concern around uh, you know the Taiwan semiconductor story is. Uh, I don't think it'll need to come to a military, you know, uh, escalation there. I mean, yeah. you know, we, we've had a, a U.S. military presence in Taiwan since the day Taiwan was created. You know, basically started as the the island of Formosa when we were backing the Kuomintang against Mao, right. and then they retreated to Taiwan, you know, with a with a naval with a U.S. naval you know blockade, you know, protecting them. Um, and, uh, you know, the, the main thing that I think is going to be the escalation point in Taiwan is control over their own internal politics and how long, uh, a sort of U S backed government can outcompete a, uh, politic politically and economically Chinese political influence on the Island. And that to me is actually a, um, a, a more pressing concern than the military one, because I don't think that China will risk a, um, the kind of Pearl Harbor moment that many, I think, in, in our Congress are, are hoping for, frankly, to be able to activate our own military industrial complex on a real hard target uh, with, with some sort of you know, war, in the, uh, war in the Pacific that also you know, taps into our allies in the region like Australia and others. And, you know, we're trying to build this sort of NATO quad right now to try to you know, um, to try to build up our, our military presence in, in the South China Sea. But as I see it, it, you know, the economic race against China is much more pressing than the military one because our ability to create a, a, a political beachhead in Taiwan is based on our ability to basically fund, you know, fund Taiwan civil society and, uh, and political groups. And that's basically just a, just a cash race of the U.S. against China, and you know, as we see country after country, region after region, China has toppled the U.S. in terms of you know top trading partners. I think it was only three years ago when when Europe flipped from being uh, the U.S. as the top trading partner to um, to China, and I mean that's a that's a major moment, and all these security concerns, um, you know, as as China gets more and more wealthy relative to us. I think they may be able to buy Taiwan faster than they can seize Taiwan. And, uh, you know, if that happens, um, you know, all it would take is basically a corporate regime change event at uh, Taiwan Semiconductor to, um, to make things very, 
very bad for us. Yeah, boardroom diplomacy. You laid out for us how uh, regime change really became kind of the, the crutch or the shortcut to having a grand strategy or a foreign policy for a long time, even after it was proven to be maybe not such a great idea or not as effective as people hoped. Do you think that, that you know, overthrowing the CCP or getting rid of Vladimir Putin, you think this is a, a pipe dream? You think it's cope? Yeah, I mean, we've, we've tried so many times, um, you know, with Russia, we tried a sort of regime change from the left flank with, you know, back during the Hillary Clinton State Department uh, era. And, you know, our ambassador, Michael McFaul, got kicked out of the country. You know, we did everything from organizing these gay Putin posters to try to rev up, L, you know, LGBT sentiment in Russia against uh, you know, we uh, our CIA cutouts like the National Endowment for Democracy funded Pussy Riot, you know, these uh, sort of angry street protests, you know, radical feminist uh, rock music, uh, that failed dismally. So then we tried to uh, create a political flank in Russia from the right by pumping up Alexei Navalny, um, you know, who was a guy who was, you know, groomed at the Yale Jackson School, which is, uh, you know, a sort of notorious CIA emerging leaders program. And then we shipped him back out to Russia from Yale to run against, uh, you know, run against Putin on a sort of nationalist right wing ticket. Um, and then, uh, you know, a variety of things happened. He ended up being sentenced to, sentenced to jail, put down very quickly, never even got beyond 2% in the polls. Um, I don't think that we have the assets in Russia, uh, as long as Russia has an economic engine from its energy exports and from its military industry exports to be able to organize a successful regime change. There has been talk about the idea of balkanizing Russia along, along, along ethnic lines, which is the classic way that we carved up Yugoslavia. Yeah. And there was a lot of optimism at the State Department to do that back in 2022 when there was this massive overconfidence that Russia was going to be bankrupted by the, uh, by the NATO response to the war. You know, there was this grand Ukraine energy play around killing Gazprom and prying them out of, prying them out of Europe and replacing all of that natural gas with U.S. and London LNG, which actually was successfully done. But what ended up happening is uh, Russia just reconnected all of that oil and gas to China. And China got a, got a base, bargain basement discount where instead of Europe getting all that cheap oil and gas, now China was. And not only that, China was selling the excess Russian gas to Europe. So they were getting it, they were getting it in there anyway. And uh, instead of you know, China competing on the open market and having to pay a normal price for that, for that energy, which it has a massive need for. I mean, China, because it's got 1.4 billion people, uh, and not nearly enough endogenous resources of its own is the world's biggest importer of those resources. They have the highest need. Um, you know, good old-fashioned great power diplomacy would say we should be trying to find a way for them to pay the most expensive version possible so that they have less national assets to compete with us with. But instead, we did the exact opposite. We drove Russia and China directly into this massive economic partnership, which meant that, Ru that Russia has basically suffered almost no economic cost from, from the war in that, in that respect. And you know, that, those economic costs are such a huge um, precursor to the ability to accomplish a regime change because only through a sort of destabilized, under-resourced regime can you get a sort of spunky group of dissident upstarts to achieve that critical mass because the police state is underfunded, you know, because the the media, the state-run media assets, you know, are 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 not as well resourced or capacity built. So you know, we never even got off the ground with it. And then in China, you know, China uh, built all of its own infrastructure. I mean, they their lesson from the Tiananmen Square episode in in 1989 was that you know the U.S. was going to you know be perpetually hell bent on on overthrowing their government. And as soon as, uh, you know, as, as soon as the U.S. started, uh, you know, using the Internet in China as a means for soft power projection from the West, China adopted, what, you know, what they called the Great Firewall, you know, a sort of digital, digital version of, of, you know, the Great Wall, uh, which is that they don't allow in any Western media sites. There's no Google, there's no Facebook in China. And because of that, it's very difficult for us to penetrate 
the Chinese mainland. So what we've done instead is we've focused on these sort of outer rim regions like, uh, like Xinjiang uh, in order to try to balkanize China along, along ethnic lines. Again, the Yugoslavia, the Russia strategy, yeah. it, where now we're trying to basically turn Xinjiang into East Turkestan and have it be declared an independent country, and then 16% of China's land mass would be lopped off if we could do that. A day late and a dollar short. And that firewall approach is spreading. I mean, even the Indians, you know, Google, no thank you. We, we got this. Um, that sort of nationalization of uh, at least the strategic element of the internet, uh, it's, it's catching on. Uh, let's talk about the war in Ukraine. Um, at the time when it got started, I thought like, well, okay, at least if I'm sort of sitting there, uh, whether it's at state or DOD or whatever, you're thinking like, well, at least we can kind of try out our newest, greatest, latest and greatest toys, get them some field use, maybe flood the zone with bots and see if the kill bots can kill right. But that never really happened, did it? I mean, what has been the utility of this? Is it really about you know, hiding the, the bio labs? What are we getting out of this war? Well, the, you know, the, I think there were two main purposes of the war. Um, you know, I mean, so first of all, you know, the war was precipitated by our, um, you know, but, I mean, you have to start the 2022 situation at least in 2014. I mean, the the Eastern Ukraine region was a, has been a, this purgatory zone since 2014 when, you know, we engineered this coup and that's exactly, you know, there's, there's no arguing with, with that. I mean, we, we have Victoria. And Newland that's good or, and that's bad. It's what happened. Exactly. Exactly. You can, yeah, exactly. So, yeah, but the fact is, is the head of our embassy was handing out cookies and water bottles to the mob in the Maidan square that we had pumped up with $5 billion of national endowment for democracy and USAID money. We that gave was uh, Victoria Newland. Victoria Newland. Yeah. And it's, that's a huge amount of money to build up this, battering ram block that literally, you know, descended on the square violently to oust the democratically elected president uh, from office. And I don't think that Viktor Yanukovych, the guy that they that they ousted, was this, you know, Russian puppet, frankly, that he was, you know, that he was, the people said he was. Um, uh, he was a guy who was torn between the East and the West. He had signed uh, these massive energy deals with Western energy companies uh, from 2011 through 2013, signed a $10 billion um, uh, deal between Chevron and, uh, and Naftagas, the Ukrainian, um, uh, the Ukrainian public uh, gas company that is responsible for most of Ukraine's national revenue. Uh, they also signed a $10 billion gas deal with Shell, the, the London gas giant. Um, and, you know, it wasn't until they, uh, the IMF threatened to basically um, completely take over all of their publicly held assets uh, with this insane trade deal that we had them over the coals with. And they decided to go with a Russian trade deal instead of the U.S. one in 2014, that we organized our rental riots to oust that, that country's government. And then the fallout from that was that the entire eastern flank of the country broke apart and said, we're not going to be subject to this new you know, U.S. installed government. And that's what it was. You know, Yatsenyuk, the president, you know, after the coup was not elected. He was, there was no vote. He was selected by Victoria Newland and Jeff Pyatt, who were caught on hot tape uh, saying that he would be the next president and F the EU. Nobody else gets to say who the next president of the Ukraine is. There are vassal state. Uh, and so, you know, Crimea declared itself to be a part of the Russian Federation and the, the, the two major Donbass provinces declared themselves to be breakaway states from Kiev. Uh, and then, so what happened in between 2014 and 2022? Well, we funded the, the military reconquest of the Eastern region, killing 15,000 know, people in Eastern Russia as we attempted to take back this territory that declared itself sovereign from the, from the coup government. And you know, a lot of that was this, was this big energy battle. You know, we have, there's a lot of money at stake um, in, in everything. You know, the, the Soviet states touch on everything from the from the Caspian to the to the, to essentially the, the Persian Gulf. You can even argue uh, to the Black Sea, and you know this is this is basically the region where most of the world's hydrocarbons are, and the the control over the political leadership of these countries determines the entire oil and gas policies. Who gets the contracts? You know how much of that is taken by the state. You know what is everybody's cut? 
the, the, the stability of the economic investments and the entire, entire oil and gas story depends on whose puppet these countries are. And Putin rose to power in 1999 on the back of using Gazprom, the Russian state gas company, as the battering ram to reassert political influence over the former Soviet states that were being folded into NATO. He did this in Georgia, he did this in Ukraine, and that was when the U.S. State Department freaked out about Russia in around 2005, 2006, and said, okay, we need to kill Gazprom. We need, and uh, because Gazprom is how Putin, how Russia is unwinding the end of history. They're reasserting control over Central and Eastern Europe. They're, re they're reasserting control over, over Germany by, uh, by Germany's political reliance, their economic reliance on things like the Nord Stream 1 pipeline and, 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 and other trade relationships. So if we, so, Gazprom is basically Russia's whole economy. I mean, that's the whole, you know, John McCain joke about Russia's just a, a gas station with, with a military. Um, and so the idea is if you can kill Gazprom, and Gazprom's revenues primarily came from feeding energy into Europe through Ukraine and through, and through Germany, if you can, then you can bankrupt Russia. And if Russia's bankrupted, then we get control over the Caspian Sea, we get control over the Black Sea, we get control over the $2 trillion worth of hydrocarbons in the area. This is why you see Halliburton and Chevron and Exxon and Shell all over the Ukraine story. But then, you know, in addition to that, if you kill Russia's economy, you also kill Russia's military export economy. All around the world, uh, the U.S. Pentagon has been thwarted at, you know, at multiple turns by Russian military supplies. Everything, everywhere from Central and Sub-Saharan Africa uh, to, you know, with, with, the, with Russia su supplying small arms to even how you know Obama tried to basically take Syria and was only stopped because Russia provided you know the S four hundred air defense systems that prevented us from being able to do our typical you know uh, Iraq strategy of just you know bombs over Baghdad and so all of all of the military resistance around the world to the Pentagon drops out if you can kill Russia's energy uh, because that that's those are the revenues that that go into funding the military complex. Uh, and, and, you know, when in, so I think the, the energy story is, is a lot of what drove uh, the, the military side of this, although there's that interplay that I, you know, I talked about. All right. We got uh, maybe 15 minutes here, so I'm going to hopscotch a little bit. Let's go west. Uh, US, UK, right? This is kind of one entity at this point, you know, in ways that I think is going to bother a lot of Americans. You don't want to be dumping on our allies, but mm. things have gotten really off track here. I mean, you, this goes back to GCHQ and NSA basically being one organization, totally sharing all of their information. I think that's just unconstitutional on its face. I understand there are reasons for this. You know, international politics ain't beanbag. But you can, you, starting from there and going to where we are now, you know, Donald Trump got a, just a ration of, of crap for claiming that, uh, that Obama would be so nefarious as to tap our UK allies in order to sort of get under his skirts and have a look around. But this is, this is stuff that's been going on. And now you just, it's, it's in the news, Washington Examiner and here, here with Blaze and elsewhere, just seeing how our deep state, how our uh, administrative state using British resources, NGOs, using these assets to come back and penetrate our civil society and do things to us that are simply not legal, not constitutional. How do we stop this? Oh, totally. Uh, I'm so glad you brought that up. It's such a huge issue. Uh, the UK has become the, the, the primary laundering tool for things that our intelligence services and our State Department want to do but can't get away with. And so they, they simply give the Brits the resources to do it. I mean, we saw this with Russiagate. Russiagate, you know, the whole, the whole dirty dossier that gave rise to a two and a half year special prosecutor dogging the president at every turn um, was a British intelligence operation, essentially, around, around Christopher Steele and Richard Dearlove and this MI, this MI6 network that became a private intelligence network, you know, immediately after they retired. And it was, you know, that was a British intelligence dirty dossier, essentially, that was laundered home to create the predicate for getting rid of the president that London did not want, uh, you know, just like London didn't, you know, and gets into the Brexit story there too. But, you know, you see this all over the censorship industry as well. And a great example of this is um, some of the nastiest censorship industry heavyweights that target U.S. citizens are actually London firms. These are groups like Center for Countering Digital Hate, which went after Elon Musk and, uh, and went after, you know, 
U.S. citizens on everything from the 2020 election to COVID. Um, these are groups like the Atlantic Council. Uh, you know, these are um, groups like the Institute for Strategic Dialogue. Uh, there's there's dozens and dozens of them. One of them is uh, the University of Cambridge has a group called the Social uh, the Social Decision Making Lab, which is run by this guy Sander Vanderlinden, and you they get money from the U.S. State Department. Uh, the Global Engagement Center, which is the censorship wing of the State Department, they get they they're partnered with our Department of Homeland Defense. Uh, our, I'm sorry, our Department of Homeland Security, the CISA uh, division there, which is our censorship subdivision within DHS, uh, and they're partnered with Google's Jigsaw, which is basically the CIA branch of of, of Google, uh, which was set up by a former State Department guy, and uh, the things that they are funded to do. Uh, are explicitly targeting U.S. conservative beliefs about uh, about the 2020 election, censoring U.S. conservative beliefs about climate change. Censoring. I mean, they will literally say in their, you know, in in their studies and their white papers and basically their propaganda work and their attempted brainwashing work, because this all goes into these pre-bunking, um, you know, scripts that are then used to feed into the censorship algorithms at, at Facebook and YouTube, uh, because they're basically tapped as these kind of misinformation experts and work with the trust and safety teams there. But they explicitly go political. They explicitly say, you know, conservatives are, are wrong about climate change and they're wrong about COVID and they're wrong about, you know, whether Trump really won the election. Uh, here are here are different ways to essentially psychologically brainwash these people on the basis of using them as test subjects in British labs. Um, you know, we, we've developed these pre-bunking techniques and we subject them to a 30 second to two minute video, or we, we, uh, we set up a test, uh, you know, user interface for, uh, for a Facebook feed, working with our Facebook, uh, allies, you know, and we saw that if we restructure the way news actually hits the feed, or we, uh, you know, or we use this as a certain sort of, uh, you know, fact checking label for these type of claims that people are 33% less likely to believe that climate change is a hoax or, they're 17% less likely to share a post supporting, uh, you know, Donald Trump's claim about the 2020 election. You're like, this is the U.S. State Department paying the Brits to work with U.S. tech companies to rig our political ecosystem. I yeah. mean, this is the boomerang of, you know, you, you throw it out, you know, you know, you can't just beat them with a hammer at home yourself because the State Department is a foreign facing Entity. The CIA is foreign facing. The DOD is foreign facing. So what they do is they boomerang, instead of using a hammer to bop them at home, they boomerang it out to the Brits and the Brits boomerang it back and, and bop them for us. You know, this stuff is so important. And, and even, just what we've covered so far is, is staggering in its own right. But I don't think we can really get down deep to what's really going on unless we bring in international organized crime. There is a massive underworld, uh, and the internet has definitely added an extra dimension to that. Uh, I know that you know in some circles this can be considered almost like too spicy to talk about in polite company, but we've got Russian oligarchs, Ukrainian oligarchs, uh, dual citizenship is just out of control. People in government, U.S., U.K., U.S., Israel, uh, you know, Israeli organized crime. It's it's everywhere, and it's not just the Clinton crime family or the Biden crime family. That's a real issue. But then we've got these international networks too. It's a lot. It's almost more than than the mind can process. And I know you know some people are like, no, that's anti-Semitism. You can't talk about that. That's nonsense. When people around the world are engaged in deep criminal activity and it's drawing in different countries, people with different nationalities, different citizenships, we got to bring some kind of law and order back to the United States. How bad is the situation, and how do we? Can this even be untangled at this point? Well, this is one of my favorite topics, uh, but it's you know it's, it's quite a rabbit hole. I mean, the the issue is is you know we have a sort of overworld underworld alliance that yeah. has been a part of the international organized crime story for well well over a century. I mean, you, frankly, uh, probably a century and a half if you really sort of go go all the way back. But um, it, organized crime plays an essential role in American statecraft uh, because of the ne the necessity of us maintaining a Department of Dirty Tricks uh, in order to do rough stuff. I'll give you a great example of this is, um, take the work with like the, the, the classic sort of Italian mafia um, and, uh, and the, the drug trade and the, and the violence that, that came out of that in much of the 20th century. Well, 
you know, U.S. intelligence had a really interesting relationship with the Italian mafia um, for for 60, 70 years, um, which is that you know, we had a we had a problem back in the 1940s when Mao rose to power. Um, well, actually, let me let's start even a little bit earlier back than that. You, well, you know, you admire twelve thousand years ago. Yeah, right. No, okay, I'll keep, I'll keep going on this. <laughs> no, it you, just goes so deep, you know. Well, we had this situation in the nineteen forties where where Mao was taking over China, and this threatened U.S. basically empire expansion in Southeast Asia, and so we backed the uh, the Shanghai Sheks uh, Kuomintang against Mao, the nationalists. We backed them against against the communists. Uh, but we couldn't get congressional allocations for it. And so you know, we, we took a strategy of funding the KMT through using the assets that they sat on top of, which were the golden triangle poppy crops that, uh, that, that they had territorial control over. And so we would take the poppy and we would fly it out to our partners in Italy and in France to process that, to turn that into, into, uh, into cash and then purchase guns with that cash and ship the cash back to the KMT to fund the war. So you had drugs for cash for guns. And this is a, this is a blueprint that, that is run through the mafia. And, and here's part of the mafia story is uh, when, during the interwar period between World War I and World War II, um, the, w w as the Nazis were rising to power, uh, they were going up against the, the sort of, a, they were trying to crack down on the sort of gangs in, in Southern Italy who became an, an ally to U, the, the US and to the allies because they were being persecuted by the Nazi government. Yeah. And so we relied on the, basically the mafia as a beachhead in Southern Italy to take on Mussolini. Uh, when we won that war, uh, and we also formed an alliance with the Vatican Bank there because the, the church was also being attacked by Mussolini. When the Cold War ended, uh, we maintained those relationships with the Italian mafia and with the and with the church in Italy as a means to uh, to stop the influence of of Soviet communism in the internal politics of Italy. And uh, and this, this in 1948, we rigged the Italian election. This is not a controversial thing to say. You can listen to the godfather of the CIA himself, George Kennan, who wrote a memo, a CIA memo, 12 days after the 1948 Italian election called the Inauguration of Organized Political Warfare, where he says, we just rigged the Italian election, we were stuffing ballot boxes, we were working with the mob, we, 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 we organized this Department of Dirty Tricks, and now we need to do this all around the world, because if we don't do it, then the Bolsheviks will. Uh, and so uh, we, we had this relationship where it's like the, the Italian mafia was able to break, they were able to break up protests, uh, they were able to break up you know, political meetings from the Soviet-backed candidate. They could do the kind of you know, um, mob muscle tactics that we did not have the capacity in, inside of, of Italy to do. But you can look up everything, things around the P2 Lodge and Operation Gladio. We created this vast alliance within the, within the Italian political world, stretching from their government figures into their journalist figures, into their cultural figures, into their mob figures, so that they were all aligned with essentially the, the NATO political arc that was, that was designed for Italy in the 20th century. And, and then we would use the Italians as these proxies for the drug story, because again, we had these alliances in Italy, they were running the drug trade out, the, out of the Mediterranean. So we would use them to, to process the poppy that the KMT was sitting on by basically flying CIA aircraft over to Italy, dumping the money in the Vatican bank, and then, then we, we switched over to the Cayman Islands in the 60s and 70s. Uh, and, you know, and we teamed up with the Brits, and this is where the London story comes in with uh, with after the after the Brits lost their empire during the, the Suez Canal crisis and in the 1950s, they switched from being a sort of territorial act empire to being a sort of financial empire and setting up these offshore banking entities that we then partnered up with. But we did the same thing in Afghanistan. How did we fund the Mujahideen? The Mujahideen were a mob. They were a they were a narco terrorist group same against playbook. the Soviets there. And we they sat instead of on the Golden Triangle, they sat on the Golden Crescent. Well, what we do, we teamed up with Albanian and Turkish mafias, the CIA did and the State Department did. We ran the poppy crops out of the Golden Crescent for, for processing and we turned drugs to cash to guns. And you know what's really amazing? You can look up a group called the U.S. Institute for Peace, 
which has been a war arm of the CIA for, for at least 30, 40 years. They had a significant role in the breakup of Yugoslavia. When the, when the, when, when the Taliban took back control after, after Afghanistan and they banned poppy production, at a time when, when, when they took control again, Afghanistan was 95% of the entire world's heroin production. You would think the U.S. government would be happy that we banned, uh, that, that, that they banned heroin. But what ended up happening was the U.S. Institute for Peace, which is a State Department CIA cutout, it gets $56 million every year from, of your taxpayer money from the State Department. They are a State Department mouthpiece, $56 million a year. They issued a public statement when, when, the, when, the, when the Taliban banned poppy production, banned heroin from Afghanistan, saying that this cannot be allowed to stand. We have to stop the Taliban from, from banning the production of, of heroin uh, because it would cause this economic humanitarian disaster and it's actually going to backfire. We need to keep the heroin flow. This is the U.S. government saying, you know, we need to keep the Turkish mafia and the Albanians, in, you know, uh, mafias. We need to keep the drug trade in business in Afghanistan. All right, I, I got to get you back on here to take us from 01 to present day. But 60 seconds, you're watching this program. You're a normal American at home. You see what's what's unfolding. What can you do about it? What should uh, Americans do right now to, to start to put us back on the right track? Talk about it. Do not underestimate. Literally, just talk about it with your friends. Uh, send links. Uh, just be a, a little, you know, zealot army of one with your with a motor mouth. L strange things break when enough one small voices start talking about the same thing. You know, I can't tell you how many people I expected to know, you know, this this stuff from members of Congress to you know to people with 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 huge megaphones to policy you know makers. To, to, to lawyers who uh, once armed with this information because they've heard it in a surround sound fashion from enough media voices or in their social media feeds or it's just on the tip of everyone's tongue, begin to be able to take effective action. Do not feel hopeless about this. I mean, one great anecdote is in, in, in September 2022, the, the Harvard Misinformation Review called censorship studies. They call it disinformation studies. They, call it, they said the field of it was, quote, too big to fail because there's so much government money flowing into it, it's so institutionally entrenched, now we're basically like Lehman Brothers. The censorship industry is here to stay and you can't stop us. This was Harvard who said this. September 2023, one year later, after a concentrated effort to bring legal to bear on this, to bring media to bear on this, to bring regulatory and policymakers, to get the Twitter files involved, to, to have this sort of full press uh, public awareness push around this, as well as congressional hearings and, and the whole works, um, in 2023, the Washington Post quoted these, these former Harvard Misinformation Review folks uh, in an article that, that said that disinformation studies is, quote, in shambles uh, because of, of the drying up and the loss of political legitimacy of this. So, so that was just 12 months from being invincible to, uh, to crumbling. So, you know, it, it, that, that's all possible when, because people talk about stuff. And you start to win strange allies that don't even look like they're on your side at first when, when, uh, when it's in the air. So put it in the air is, is the thing that you can do as an average American citizen. People power of the not-so-engineered kind. I love it. Mike Benz, thanks so much for joining us. That is all the time we've got. Ran a little over, but it's good stuff. So at least until next time around, if you found this conversation meaningful, please reconsider, I'm sorry, please consider becoming a Blaze TV subscriber to help us create more content just like this. Go to blazetv.com. Use the code ZeroHour20 for $20 off your first year of Blaze TV. This is Zero Hour. I am James Polis. May God have mercy on us all.